listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored Episode 152. Today, we're going to look at the Supreme Court's epic fail, the decision in Epic Systems v. Lewis that is going to push more workers into individual arbitration. But first, the news. I am just back from Ireland, where that country overwhelmingly voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution and legalize abortion in some circumstances. You might be wondering what this has to do with workers' rights. Well, a lot. I spoke with John Meehan, a longtime pro-choice activist and a member of the trade union campaign to repeal the Eighth, about unions' involvement in the repeal fight at a rally in Dublin urging a yes vote. My name is John Meehan. I'm uh, 63 years of old. I first got involved in left-wing politics and feminist politics in the mid-1970s and at that time in the mid-1970s contraception was illegal in this state and there was a long series of campaigns it finished off we set up an organisation called the Contraception Action Programme Mm -hmm. or CAP and we sold condoms illegally in the dandelion market in Stevens Green which is kind of a hippie market and Uh stuff and at that stage then we were openly defying the law and the police didn't have the nerve to charge us because they knew we had public support and that gives an idea of the attitude of this state uh, towards Irish women extremely backward much more backward than other comparable um, European states. In the 80s, uh, the right wing could see what way the wind was blowing, so they mobilised to get a referendum to ban abortion. Although at that time, to be perfectly honest, the pro-right to choose current was extremely small and marginalised in this country. But we always had abortion, it's just that women went abroad, usually to England to have it, yeah. and they did it in silence and afraid to. Right. So that was the context. I was yeah. obviously involved in the campaign to vote no to the 1983 amendment, and we failed on that. It was passed by 63 to 37%. Tell me about the trade union campaign. Okay, the trade union campaign started about four or five years ago, and None of the major trade unions had a clear policy on this and we set about trying to change that and it was a long, uh, slow, took long, slow, methodical work but to sum it up, what we found was that in general and this was a big contrast to the early 80s wherever the issue was brought up at say a conference or regional meetings or whatever it passed very easily. Mm-hmm. It was a clear sign that opinion had moved substantially yeah. on this issue. If you raised that issue in the 1980s, yeah. you were nearly lynched, taken out of the hall, and you were mm-hmm. careful if you weren't yeah. losing your job, uh, threatened, all that kind of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. The fear was very, very heavy. And like back in the 1980s, notoriously, a woman called Eileen Flynn was sacked from her job as a teacher for taking a position on these things. But she wasn't uh, the only one. But all of this showed in nearly practically all of the union meetings that the uh, tide of public opinion had swung. So, but then you sometimes get a gap, quite often, between a policy and doing something about it. So 
Sounds familiar. <laughs> okay, grand. Yeah, yeah. Sounds familiar. Okay. So that can be a tough and frustrating struggle yeah. for activists, and yeah. you have to find ways around it. Yeah. But what we have succeeded in doing is get the backing from the main unions mm-hmm. for a newspaper. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I do. I have a copy in my bag. Grand. And also a leaflet, mm-hmm. which is pitched both at people in the workplace yeah. and more generally as uh, a device for canvassing. Yeah. So we've used that, and that's encouraged yeah. people to yeah. be able to take up these. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, you know, in the U.S., it's hard to get the unions to take a position on anything that doesn't directly affect them. And so it's surprising to me that here, where abortion is illegal, where this is in the Constitution, that you've got a strong trade union campaign to repeal. Mm-hmm. Because I just, we don't see that very much. Well, I, I can't, you know, yeah, dictate yeah, yeah. what No, I just, I'm interested in, in it because it's, yeah, a, sure. you know... But I think you have a problem, more generally it's not just in Ireland, yeah. of a union leadership which is full-time and very routinist, mm-hmm. but the interests of the members you know, can be looked at objectively. Right. And you have to work a balance between these two things, and uh, sometimes you can get some success in it, sometimes it's, yeah. it's much harder. Um, even after this referendum, and it's a question of taking people getting out of their normal routine Um, so you get that balance okay and after there's a survey worth looking at which the campaign was involved called abortion as a workplace issue Mm -hmm. and I would recommend people to read that and maybe look at it how they might use that kind of thing in other countries I don't know if it's true but I'm told it's the first such survey that's been done anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe somebody else has done it elsewhere, yeah. and you often get a lot of bullshit in this country that, you know, <laughs> we're the first. I don't actually know if yeah. that's the case. But it's a very good piece of uh, verifiable research yeah. because it shows that in this country, when groups of people were just sat down and just talked about the issue, yeah. It was much more of a trade union issue than they conceived of within their little box. I mean, for example, lots of people in it said it never occurred to them to go to their trade union about the issue. Mm -hmm. And here's just one small way it is a trade union issue. Women have to go for an abortion in this country by one way or another. That means they have to get time off work. Now, if it's a guy and he has, say, a heart condition or something like that. Right. Now, of course, conditions vary, unionization vary, rates vary, but there's a sort of a human way of dealing with this. If somebody's ill, they have to go to hospital, they get time off work, right. all the rest of it, and you're upfront about it. The reason I'm not at work is because I'm in hospital, it's a medical condition. Yeah. Women can't do that. They, you will see that women here don't even talk about it to their friends, to their close family. So they're certainly not going to raise it in a trade union environment. Now that, frankly, has to change. And that means a break from this kind of routinist approach Mm -hmm. towards, you know, trade union issues. It means both women coming forward and the institutions, trade unions, dealing with this, recognising it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that there has been a change in that regard. I remember um, a trade union meeting I was at three or four years ago. It was down in Liberty Hall there, where a number of left trade union leaders 
and we were involved in various issues around abortion at the time and I got up and I just said more or less that look we're doing this and it wouldn't occur to anybody yeah. in the uh, right to choose activist framework yep. to go to the trade unions because yes. they'd be wasting their time uh, listen lads because they're mostly lads that's got to change now to be fair a number of unions have started to be proactive on this and have you know there's everybody knows you have to recognize progress where it's being made one of them i suppose i'd highlight is mandate mm-hmm. which is the shop workers union which has an overwhelmingly female and working class membership and they have been proactive on the issue they've come out up front you know we're for this we're supporting it we're backing it etc etc so that's hopefully that's that's a great step in the right direction and hopefully it can be developed you know that was john meehan irish trade union activist and pro-choice campaigner so the me too moment has had its spotlight on the red carpet and on the runway but is it going to shake things up in the rest of the fashion world the one that you don't see Human rights advocates have mapped the global garment workforce to show how gender-based violence hurts women across the fashion supply chain. The survey of women workers in fashion brand supplier factories in Asia, published by Asia Floor Wage Alliance, Central Cambodia, and Global Labor Justice, parallels a global summit held by the International Labor Organization on Supply Chain Labor Conditions. By focusing on the supply chains of Walmart, H&M, and Gap in Bangladesh, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia, the field research highlights a, quote, spectrum of gender-based violence and risk factors for violence that women workers face across these workforces. With few other stable job opportunities in their communities, these women are often locked into poverty, chronic undernourishment, and exhausting work schedules that often impose forced overtime on a scale that would never be accepted here in the West. Yet there are many laws in the books to protect these workers. It's just that enforcement is simply non-existent. The actual level of rights and protections workers are afforded are shaped in large part by Western brands' vague corporate social responsibility codes, which are effectively non-binding, so suppliers have very little legal incentive to comply, um, other than pressure from a notoriously weak international auditing system and the occasional wave of consumer protests every time there's a fire in a factory. So, the report calls for a new global accountability system, starting with a more proactive definition of the social dimensions of gender-based violence at work. This can begin by simply broadening the definition of a worker to include those working at home, producing, say, trimmings and accessories in household workshops, as well as temporary, casual, and contingent workers, and let's not forget about job seekers, volunteers, trainees, interns, and laid-off and suspended workers. And in order to be universally enforceable and meaningful, any new regulations should reflect global human rights standards established in United Nations and OECD guidelines, including, the report says, the right to a living wage, the mechanisms needed to enforce it, um, prohibition on forced labor, decent social benefits such as health and safety protections, access to housing and education, and welfare provision for children and families. Yet enforcement is only as strong as workers are empowered to defend their rights at work. So for the Me Too moment to really mean something for the women at work around the world, 
They need to be at the table, at the head of their unions, collectively bargaining their next contracts, ensuring that bosses are held accountable for making their workplaces safe. And they should be, in short, leading this fight. Because in a world where consumption rules all, the workers need to finally take ownership over what they produce to keep themselves safe and sound at work and in their communities. While we are awaiting the Janus decision from the Supreme Court, we have been in the middle of a strike wave of public sector workers in so-called right-to-work states, you may have noticed. And we might be about to see a private sector strike in a right-to-work state, too. As we record this, the Culinary Workers Union, Local 226 of Unite Here, is one of the strongest unions in the country in a right-to-work state, representing service workers in Las Vegas. And it has voted for a citywide strike if there is no contract by midnight on June 1st. You know, the day our podcast drops. They don't schedule these things. They don't consult me first. <laughs> Contracts with 34 hotel resorts are up for renewal in this battle, meaning that a strike would have a wide and deep reach across the entire city of Las Vegas, which you could perhaps guess relies on its service workers to run. The union has estimated that the two largest resort companies could lose more than $10 million a day if housekeepers, cooks, and other service staff take to the picket lines. The culinary has long been the example that people have pointed to when discussing the potential of unions to be strong and thrive under right-to-work laws. It's also been a good example of union power making normally low-paid service jobs into good jobs with comparable wage and benefit plans to the industrial jobs that everybody is constantly being nostalgic for. They have pensions and health care, an average wage of $23 an hour, and even get home-buying assistance. The workers are asking for about a 4% raise, but also for training and job opportunities as the companies look to automate some of the work that is now done by hand. What's going to happen to my position, Fernando Fernandez, a guest runner at Caesars Palace, asked USA Today. I think they're going to be disappearing it because robots are going to be available to deliver everything. He wants to be clear that he will have a position if the company manages to automate his job, training in perhaps running and repairing the robots. We will update you on what happened with the potential strike next time, but for now, it's worth fitting this story into the narrative around Janus and understanding that a citywide union that has aligned its contract and isn't afraid to flex its muscles every now and then can still be quite strong and powerful even under right to work. In an ongoing nationwide movement to make these guys labor-friendly, Unite Here recently rallied United Airlines catering workers from across the nation at a shareholders meeting in Chicago. They're campaigning on behalf of 2,700 catering workers in Newark, Houston, Denver, Cleveland, and Honolulu airports. In January of this year, three quarters of these catering workers voted for a union and they want United to allow them to officially unionize so that they can achieve the rights at work that are equal to that of other United employees who are generally unionized in other divisions, such as in-flight staff. According to Unite Here, United's directly employed catering workers are over 95% people of color with origins in over 60 countries. They earn lower wages than the other United employees, face harsher work rules, and have no protections against unjust firings. United's United's catering employees are the only frontline United workers without union representation, close quote. 
Meanwhile, the aviation giant is pushing back hard against the union. They're running anti-union campaigns, and the catering workers are now mobilizing to pressure the CEOs, as well as the shareholders, to listen to their demands, just as United has been forced to capitulate on public pressure from consumers over their unfair and abusive treatment of them. As for the workers, I spoke with Shadazia Dede Motley-Gibson, one of over 800 employees in United's Catering Operations Division at New York Airport, about what the union would mean to her. They choose and pick of when they enforce their rules. Like, if you're saying yes, 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 and then you you like, you 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 killing yourself just to please them, like they bend the rules for you. But if you're going by their policy book, it's like they see you as a, a, a threat. If, if we do lose our union, but we, we, we won, like, this is the most that we all came together, like, each department and each race and each age group, we all together, like, we all know the truth, like, it's the company, it's the, like, the higher person that something that we don't have no control of, that they, they wanted us to be against each other, like, we didn't have that before the night here came, like, now we got that, now we talk to each other, like, you feel me, like, we was going, we was going at each other mad hard and blaming this person why our job wasn't, or our first, uh, the job wasn't getting done on time, or why we had to be late, and when we really looked at it, it was really the job, it was the job one of the things on time. That was Day-Day Modley Gibson, United Catering Worker and budding union organizer. So the Supreme Court just voted 5-4 to four to give corporations across the country the right to unilaterally impose labor contracts on employees with mandatory arbitration provisions attached and removed workers' rights to collectively sue their employers in court. Essentially, taking a job now means signing away your access to justice. In the ruling known as Epic Systems, workers will be blocked from launching class action lawsuits on major questions of civil and labor rights. To understand just how devastating this is for your average worker, we talked to Celine McNichols. She is an analyst at Economic Policy Institute, and she outlined for us what the ruling means for both union and non-union workers, and how this works in combination with a whole bunch of other policies that the Trump administration is rolling out to undermine workplace justice. What is the legal landscape for groups of low-wage workers um, in light of this ruling um, now that, you know, we see that the the scope for um, class action lawsuits on a whole variety of issues is basically gone? Yeah, no, I think for for low-wage workers, this makes it incredibly difficult for them to be able to handle uh, a wage uh, claim case, right? Because for them, they, they really need to be able to aggregate their claims to make it worthwhile for an attorney to, you know, to take them on. And also, you know, just I, I think because of fears of retaliation and, you know, being able to act collectively um, is so important to workers across the board, but certainly to low wage workers who, who may be in positions where they're, they're more vulnerable, being able to, to sort of have that um, leverage that they can exert when they're acting, you know, in, in concert with one another is is sort of critical for them to be able to access their rights. 
Um, and so, you know, I see the Epic Systems decision as, you know, sort of striking at, at the heart of workers' ability to, to act collectively, which makes it all the more difficult for them to access rights, not only, you know, wage and hour, uh, you know, protections, but obviously the, you know, discrimination protections um, across the board. This is really, to me, sort of a way of, of employers getting around all of the hard-fought, hard-won, you know, worker protections that um, exist across, you know, different uh, statutes that, that provide workers, you know, the right to be paid overtime, um, the right not to be discriminated against on the base of races and sex, you know, all of those kinds of protections, they end up being able to have you waive it on your first day on the job. Would it make a difference at all in cases such as these if uh, workers can act collectively through a union versus banding together as an individual class of plaintiffs? Um, or is that sort of a separate issue? Because I, I imagine there might be incidents in which, um, at least maybe on the, on the union rights front, that uh, an entire union would be helpful um, in terms of advocating for certain legal rights. Yeah, and I think that there's one that's that's one aspect of the Epic Systems decision that that sort of stood out to me. Um, the the court majority gave you know consideration to the fact that much of the National Labor Relations Act, with at least in their interpretation, you know clearly protects. The, the rights of workers to act collectively when they are doing so around, un, you know, forming a union and collectively bargaining. They kind of, the majority sort of said that's the heart of the act. Um, and so I, I think that in, if anything, this should sort of show workers that, you know, one way to continue to access sort of these rights collectively is to do so, you know, in, a, in the formal, you know, a labor organization model where you have built-in representation. There's also, you know, you're not going it alone um, in, in any kind Kind of uh, resolution of workplace disputes, you know, even if you you end up as an individual worker who's a member of a union, um, having let's say a, a disciplinary action against you know just you, you're not going to handle that that disciplinary action on your own, right? You're going to have a, a union rep who helps you navigate that whole process. And then on a larger scale, you're obviously negotiating for the terms and conditions and benefits of, of your work, you know, with members of your, your union, your bargaining unit. So I don't really believe there's a silver lining to the decision, but if there's any kind of clear response, it's for workers to kind of come together in, in, a, in, a, in a formal, you know, union um, and, you know, work with their employer to resolve disputes through that. Um, I do think, though, that this makes it harder for, for um, you know, workers to organize because, you know, waiving your right to act collectively, you know, from the get-go, even though the court sort of draws the line saying, you know, you can't, you can waive your right to a class and collective action. I think the chilling effect that this might have on workers, um, for example, the work, like the fight for, for 15 fast food workers who are not necessarily, um, you know, acting, they like a union at the end of, of the day, but they're, you know, they're, they're sort of um, actions to sort of drive up wages and things are at least for now occurring outside of the union. I think that there's sort of a chilling effect on that kind of activity because, um, and you see the same thing as you mentioned with sort of non-disclosure agreements and non-competes and all of these sort of restrictions on workers' um, you know, ability to sort of access rights. There, there's a chilling effect, even though non-disclosures may not actually be, you know, always enforceable, non-competes may not always be enforceable, dependent on state laws, but for working, you know, working people who sign them, you, you have the impression then 
well, no, no, I, I can't, you know, um, do this, that, or the other because I've, I signed something and I'm going to get sued by my employer if I violate it. So even when you're not necessarily signing something that maybe one is valid or two, um, you know, in this context, you might waive your right to class action lawfully. But the effect of that is going to be that, you know, I fear that workers are going to feel a chilling of, of their ability to kind of come together in any circumstance because they're unable to pursue, um, you know, that class and collective action as a result of having signed the waiver. Mm-hmm. And of course, it becomes sort of a chicken and the egg question, right? I mean, the less you're able to act right. as a cohort in, in a legal sense for your rights, even if you don't have a union, the harder it is to band together to say form a union. Can you just discuss the distinction, you know, between how labor law is executed and, and enforced and adjudicated versus things like non-discrimination? gender discrimination, um, you know, sexual harassment claims around the issue of, of union rights per se. I mean, that all is given its own sort of, in a way, it's sort of like a federal court of arbitration. It's the NLRB, right? I mean, a lot of the cases are then headed, you know, directly routed into that, which is its alternative system of justice. Can you compare all these different sort of arenas of law? Sure. So I, I think the one um, sort of clarification that I would provide to that is you're exactly right that, um, you know, issues of the NLRA get resolved by the National Labor Relations Board, which is its own, uh, you know, sort of creature. Right. So it has its own complexities. And, you know, um, many, many folks have pointed out that things take too long. And, you know, there are many criticisms of the agency, uh, you know, some of which I think are very valid and others are, are more you know, sort of used for political purposes. But, you know, I wouldn't say that that's how the vast majority of um, you know, union members actually are not going to the board for a resolution of, of a labor dispute. They're looking to their collective bargaining agreement and their union representative um, and the general counsel of you know, their local union or you know, with support from the international. Like you are resolving your, you know, let's say um, you, know, you as a worker are discriminated against you're, um, based on your sex. Um, and you're a union member, right? You are going to your union to, you know, grieve that that action. And there's going to be a process that, you know, you you're not going it alone. You're getting representation. You know, you are not footing the bill either. Your union is representing you and absorbing the costs of that representation um, in, you know, sort of tackling whatever has happened, um, whatever adverse employment action the employer has taken against you for this unlawful reason. That is how most, you know, union members, and for that matter, folks who are who decide not to be, you know, union members and, and pay dues, but are essentially uh, folks who have instead pay the agency um, or fair share fee as a non-member, but still have all the benefits of, of having a union represent them through a grievance process like that. That's how the average union employee is handling, um, you know, whether it's a wage issue or, you know, a sex discrimination or sexual harassment, you know, issue with an employer, you immediately have you know, representation in the workplace and a structure um, that, quite frankly, doesn't force you to go to, to court or, you know, in front of an administrative agency, um, uh, quasi-judicial agency like the EOC or the NLRB. You know, there, there's a different process by which to resolve those, and all of that is, is bargained for and outlined in a collective bargaining agreement. Um, but you are exactly right that for, um, you know, workers who are, you know, either seeking to, to form a, you know, union in their workplace 
um, or, you know, who end up um, with an employer who refuses to bargain after a union is um, voted on by the majority of the workers, then you're in front of the National Labor Relations Board for adjudication of that issue. Um, and obviously, all of the NLRB um, decisions are ultimately um, uh, appealable to, you know, to the, to the uh, appellate court. So, you know, it, it's a long process. Um, but I, I just would caution that, you know, for the average union um, worker who is experiencing an issue at work, whether, like I said, wage, you know, some sort of discrimination, you're not going to the NLRB for resolution on that. You're looking to your collective bargaining, um, you know, agreement and your, uh, you know, union representative who helps you navigate that process. Generally speaking, if you want to sue over a wage and hour violation, um, as an individual or, or as a group of workers, would that then go to the NLRB first? I mean, I, I was under the impression that you could, I and mean, you could always pursue those those types of claims in a regular civil court. Right. So um, the Fair Labor Standards Act has a collective action. Um, so it's sort of like a class action, um, but it, it's sort of a creature of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that's sort of, as a matter of fact, that's what many of the um, cases, the, the three consolidated cases um, in Epic Systems. I know the, um, the Murphy Oil case um, was a failure to pay overtime, um, you know, so that would have been a, uh, you know, a wage, uh, an hour, you know, dispute, and it was a small group of workers. You always have the right to sort of act, you know, together on, on those, provided you have not now signed a, a waiver of that from, from the get-go. So, you know, traditionally, you can file a class action, you can file a collective action under the Fair Labor Standards Act. You're exactly right. The only way those cases made their way um, to uh, in the case of Murphy Oil, you know, made their way to the National Labor Relations Board is that the workers who had signed the um, arbitration agreement as a condition of employment challenged that they should not have, have been able to or not been, been permitted to sort of sign away those rights because they have a, an ultimate right to act collectively under the NLRA. So they were sort of saying, hey, we should be able to, um, you know, pursue this collectively, even if it's collectively through arbitration because we have an ultimate right to act, um, at, you know, in concert with one another under the National Labor Relations Act. And so they went to the board on that issue. And there's a whole um, sort of progeny of cases uh, that are um, along those lines following the D.R. Horton opinion um, that the board uh, issued, I want to say, in 2012, that found, you know, um, that mandatory arbitration agreements that include class and collective action waivers violate the National Labor Relations Act. So that's sort of the evolution, much of which I'm sure is familiar to you, you know, of, of that case. But they were actually, when you look at the, the sort of knit and grit of, of what those workers had experienced and why they filed, uh, you know, a charge before the National Labor Relations Board, they actually had a wage issue. Uh, you know, they were not being paid overtime. Um, and that's the same as in D.R. Horton. These were, these were issues of, you know, of a of, of worker not receiving the wages she was owed for the labor that she performed. So, you know, what they, how they found themselves in front of the National Labor Relations Board is that, hey, we want to pursue this claim collectively, even if we're required to arbitrate it, we still want to arbitrate it collectively. You can't make us, you know, sort of handle this individually because the National Labor Relations Act under Section 7 gives us the right to engage in protected concerted activity. And that is the right to sort of, you know, join with your coworkers 
and go to the boss and say, hey, we're not being paid fairly, or hey, please turn up the heat in this freezing plant, you know, whatever the, the workplace um, issue may be, the NLRA gives us an absolute substantive right to, to you know, handle things collectively. And so that's, that's how they ended up getting there. But, you know, your instinct is exactly right, that really these were all about wage claims. It was just about how they were going to get resolved. You know, and then Epic, obviously, the decision is you, you know, you can be asked to, you know, sign away the right to act collectively in litigation. Um, and, you know, I think as we just discussed, I think that there'll be a chilling effect on any kind of joint um, action, even if it's just three workers kind of talking together and going to their boss and saying, you know, we think we deserve overtime because we're working in excess of 40 or, you know, whatever it may be. If you've signed that waiver, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be harder and harder to do those things that the court doesn't necessarily, in the majority opinion, say you've, you've waived, you know, um, but certainly suggests that, you know, in terms of a formal lawsuit litigation solution, you know, if you've signed those, you've lost that right to, to, to actually resolve it collectively. And so does Epic then automatically impose forced arbitration on people? I, I think so. I think, you know, I mean, I, I think that there will be employer counsel will almost be negligent not to require workers to sign these, uh, you know, these agreements that include the class and collective action waiver, because it so limits their liability, you know, um, as, as we talked about when we first started um, chatting, you know, this basically for low wage workers, and, and not even low wage workers, I mean, honestly, for workers who are middle income, middle wage workers, it is very difficult to file any kind of, of workplace um, related lawsuit. And so, you know, being able to, to do so collectively as a class is, is sort of critical to, to workers kind of being able to, to pool their resources and have some kind of ability to, to battle with an employer who may choose not to, you know, settle. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that there's there's always a misconception among um, a, a determined um, a conservative court to to sort of suggest that um, you know well if you if you allow employees working people to file lawsuits they'll file them to trigger settlements because employers you know will then they'll then want to just settle to not pay for the lawsuits. I have no idea how these you know these judges reach that conclusion because if you look at much of the landscape of labor and employment litigation in this country, if there's one thing that's abundantly clear, it's that the vast majority of large employers would rather defend decades-long lawsuits over whether or not they're paying people for overtime owed or minimum wage owed than to pay their workers, you know, the 7.25 an hour that the law mandates that they would pay them. So many times it is not a dollars and cents, uh, you know, calculation for folks. They're determined to, you know, kind of litigate these issues, at least in, in my view. There are undoubtedly large settlements and they get a lot of, you know, news coverage um, where you have an employer that gets, you know, that ends up settling a wage and hour case for 25 million, 35 million in back wages owed to workers. But in many other instances, you see employers that are really dug in and, you know, and are willing to litigate this. You certainly saw that in the McDonald's case before the National Labor Relations Board the last several years. 
It was only, you know, when they were totally unwilling, you know, to, to settle something that, that, you know, honestly just wouldn't, wouldn't have cost them a ton of money. They would have rather litigated it. And I think you saw that, you know, in some of the big ticket cases like the Walmart, you know, Duke's case, like they're, these employers are willing to, you know, to, to sort of litigate um, and, and spend some money on it. And so I think the notion that, you know, employees have all of this power to trigger these big companies with unlimited resources to settle just because they file a suit um, is, is just, uh, it, it's an absolute misunderstanding, misinterpretation of the legal landscape from a working person's perspective. Would that change your rights in a mandatory arbitration system then, if that if that is then imposed by Epic? Yeah. Okay. With the union card, you can actually, you, you have greater powers, even if it's just in an arbitration process, whereas if you're an individual worker, you're, you're going through that arbitration process by yourself. Exactly. If you're a union worker, then you are not, um, you know, sort of subject to that quote unquote mandatory arbitration where you're the individual worker sitting across from, you know, an arbitrator who's likely selected by the employer. Instead, you know, many collective bargaining agreements have arbitration provisions included. And the union, because it's representing, you know, all of the workers in the bargaining unit, oftentimes the, the um, arbitrator is jointly selected between the union and the employer. You're not in the in that room alone. You're, you know, you're getting representation throughout the process from your union. So it looks very, very different uh, for workers that are represented by a union than it does for a worker who is signing away that right on her first day on the job and is not a member of any kind of labor organization who can make sure that she's got representation through a process that, you know, may be very difficult for her to navigate. Just the incentive is so high. And, you know, I know you're familiar with the the EPI um, survey on employers who require these kinds of agreements. And, you know, there's just been such a, a growth in the number of firms that require this, and particularly large firms that require workers to sign mandatory arbitration agreements. And you didn't have quite the same um, take up in, in the class and collective action waivers. But I think, you know, after this decision, my colleague and I, Heidi Sherholtz, just like sort of ran the numbers. If, it fo- if the take-up rate followed a similar trajectory to what employers have done in the context of just mandatory arbitration, within six years of this decision, 85 million workers are going to have signed mandatory arbitration agreements that include the class and collective action waiver. So that's a huge segment of our workforce. You know, it's, it's just... It's, it's safe to say the majority of workers will be forced to resolve all of those hard-fought, hard-won, you know, protections in a system that is fundamentally rigged against them because it's an individual arbitration outside of the collective bargaining, you know, context process, and it's just very unfair to, you know, to workers. And it's something the court majority just treated, just didn't sort of seem willing to, to understand that for an individual worker to navigate something like that. Uh, there's there is no equity. There is no similarly situated bargaining entities. The only way you get even close to that is to have a union, you know, um, help you navigate the arbitration process. Otherwise, you could find yourself in a courtroom of which you had no, you know, choosing totally off the record. Um, and, you, you know, you didn't get any say in the judge and the jury and you're sitting at that table alone.
you know, that's the way it, it's going to look. And and not to mention, you know, you may have fees and, and other charges associated with it. Um, and for low wage and middle wage workers, that's just who, in the same way, we don't fight the cell phone companies when we sign these, you know, the, these things. It's just going to be that working people have that, that sort of end up feeling sort of similarly disenfranchised from a process of, of like sort of workplace rights. Because, you know, it just becomes so inaccessible um, and, and the risks are so high. You know, not only are you risking your job, you're also risking, you know, the fact that, hey, like, they could fire me for this. And then, you know what, I find myself back in arbitration on that, you know, grieving. So I, I think it just becomes uh, something that's so disempowering for, for working people um, in the same way I know I dread, you know, having to call about my, my cell phone bill or, you know, my cable bill or anything like that, because, you know, you have very few rights. It's just, to me, it's something so much more significant when it's, it's your, um, it's your job, it's your, your livelihood, um, it's taking care of your family. In many instances, it's your access to health care as well, um, even with reforms in that area. You know, so there's so much on the line for, for workers to just sort of force them um, into a situation where they have to, um, you know, speak up, incur the, you know, costs, incur, you know, suffer the retaliation that may ensue when they actually do speak up only to find themselves, um, you know, forced into a process that really does not serve them, I think is 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 really unfortunate and, and likely um, where we're at as a result of Epic. The other thing to just, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you know all of this, but I'll just say it, um, is for, for union workers, they're already less likely, you know, we've, we've looked at the data, they're less likely to experience wage theft, they're less likely to work in a workplace that has, um, you know, health and safety issues. So it's almost to your one-two punch, like it's almost like there are these different sort of classes of workers, right? There's workers who um, are, are fortunate enough to have union representation and all of those sort of tangential benefits that come with it. And then there are workers who are going to increasingly, you know, not be signing away those rights. And once those rights become inaccessible, unfortunately, I think you'll see employers that are far more likely to be flagrantly violating, you know, um, and you're going to work in a less safe workplace because it's not going to cost the employer to, you know, um, to, to sort of be hit with any kind of safety, uh, you know, lawsuits or anything like that. You're not going to, you know, necessarily get paid your overtime when you're owed it because there's not going to be the same incentive, uh, you know, or, you know, sort of fear of getting hit with a, a large lawsuit um, because, you know, your workers aren't going to be able to file that class or collective action suit that you end up having to settle for that $35 million, you know. So I think as a result of that, you sort of get more of the race to the bottom in terms of the way employers conduct their business. And that's a shame because there are, I'm sure there are employers out there um, I say this not having encountered any of them in my own, uh, you know, work life here, but, um, you know, I'm sure there are employers who would like to do, uh, you know, really good things for their, their workers. And it just becomes harder and harder for them to, to do business um, and, and maintain profit because other companies decide to sort of, you know, uh, cut costs because they now have reduced their liability. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that all of this just, speaks really, really um, concerningly for the future of, you know, what it looks like to work in this country, because we're incentivizing all the wrong things, and we're making it harder and harder for workers to really be able to be an advocate for themselves on the job. Um, and without some sort of, uh, you know, worker, you know, voice, I, I think you just sort of see that employers begin to feel a lot of pressure to, to sort of cut corners to compete with 
put the, the employers who are sort of the worst among them, and that's really unfortunate. One of the reasons why union workers have these advantages and why there is that union premium um, is precisely because their bosses fear the legal consequences. Like that's that's what the chilling effect looks like from the boss's standpoint, right? When they actually fear the law. Uh, Unfortunately, now we have workers fearing the law. I'm also thinking like on the state level, we have, you know, state level labor boards. In some cases, I know for the Uber drivers, they've come up with more equitable decisions for them. Than, um, than, than other legal arenas have um, because Uber workers are so constrained in terms of their rights. Um, but, you know, they, they have been able to take legal action through those types of mechanisms that operate at a more local level. Or what about mm-hmm. the Department of Labor, for instance? People file complaints at that over wage and hour things. Um, you know, are those alternatives, um, if not substitutes, for a full-on court process? Yeah, I mean, I think that one one thing that this does highlight is how critical, um, you know, governmental enforcement of these sort of basic labor uh, employment protections really is, because it's going to be the one way that um, they can kind of come in and really battle in in a collective way. I I don't know much uh, about it, um, but I I know uh, I have a colleague, Terry Gerstein, um, who I'm sure you could talk to who would be able to be much better on this, but I know that the Private Attorney General um, Act uh, is something that folks flag as you know, a way of being able to potentially get workers some relief and sort of allow them to act in a, in a class or, a, you know, collective um, uh, way. But I, I think that, you know, one caveat I would say is that, you know, that's not going to work for everyone. You have to have sort of the perfect storm of a very um, progressive uh, state legislature to get you the right statute and then an attorney general that's willing to sort of play ball with that. So, um, you know, this is really uh, something that, you know, DOL and state wage and uh, an hour where they have state wage and hour enforcement is going to be really important. And, and you know, advocates being creative, certainly um, if, if there is a way to make um, the private attorney general, you know, act uh, effective for, for worker rights enforcement, those should absolutely be explored because it's very clear that the current administration, Department of Labor, is not going to prioritize um, enforcing uh, these basic rights. They are far more busy making sure that, you know, unions um, comply with uh, ridiculously burdensome disclosures and employers get all the guidance they need um, on how to, you know, uh, sort of avoid some some penalties and things like that. So, you know, I, I think um, looking, you know, creatively is really important, but I just um, would say that, I, you know, I think really all of us, um, you know, all the people in this country that work for living, like demanding something of those enforcement agencies right now and holding them accountable um, and insisting that our, you know, members of Congress hold the the federal DOL accountable um, and that your state, you know, um, legislatures hold uh, state agencies tasked with enforcement accountable um, is really critical. Like there's never been, I think, a more important time for, um, you know, worker advocates to really, you know, speak up and to demand something of government such that labor and employment, you know, rights don't just get so marginalized that um, there's no path back, you know, to, to, to sort of a meaningful um, enforcement and, and meaningful protection. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say like, oh, well, you know, the people at the Labor Department these days are too busy uh, taking away overtime rights. You know, to that end, I think that with the minimum wage rising in so many areas of the country, 
you can't um, rely on your government to enforce the minimum wage at the very least, you know, um, and you can't go to court collectively, um, you know, that really does put the pressure on, on, I guess, maybe local local lawmakers and local local um, agencies to, to really pick up the slack if they can. And there's one way to change all that, and that is to, uh, you know, you, we can get a very different government if we all, uh, you know, keep up the fight here, too. I think it's super important to do um, the local, you know, efforts, and, you know, that's where all, like, change begins. But I just think, you know, making our elected officials and those who, you know, seek elected office you know, answerable to, you know, to working people and an agenda that serves them is absolutely critical. And, you know, if we want real meaningful reform, which we desperately need after the ethics systems decision, and I fear the likely decision in Janus, then, you know, we absolutely have to demand that we we have, you know, um, folks in office who prioritize these issues um, above and beyond all else. That was Celine McNichols of the Economic Policy Institute. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week for ARG, I'm looking at a piece that friend of the show and feminist economist Kate Bond wrote for Slate titled Education Won't Solve Inequality. In it, she takes on prevailing economic wisdom about the skills gap, a myth that maybe someday articles like this will eventually put the final nail in the coffin of. Kate explains, quote, Many economists, led by the work of David Autor, have argued that growing income inequality can be explained by a concept called skill-biased technological change, or SBTC. Autor's theory about SBTC holds that the rise of high-skilled workers has caused job polarization, with more demand for very high-skilled jobs and some demand for low-skilled jobs, and a hollowing out of mid-skilled jobs, leaving those with less education behind, resulting in the inequality we see today. The decline of unions was thought to be another effective SBTC, since unions have historically represented workers with lower levels of education, and as more educated workers became paid more, they would opt out of joining a union, or so the logic went. In this sense, the decline of unions is not inherently a bad thing, because it means fewer Americans need the bargaining power afforded by unions, since increasing their skill is presumably giving them the ability to command higher wages without collective bargaining. End quote. It's somewhat not shocking to understand that economists came up with this idea. (laughs) But anyway... The point of this article is that this is not a sufficient argument to explain what's actually gone on in society. Instead, she analyzes new research and points out that, quote, greater education and the need for more workers to receive it are not adequate explanations of inequality. The decline in union density is. Providing opportunity to American families will require a robust labor movement that balances corporate power and pushes back against the wage stagnation affecting most workers. End quote. In other words... It's all about power, still. Recent teacher strikes are just one example of how worker power has been necessary, even among highly educated workers, remember all those teachers who are being told to go get master's degrees, in order to ensure that their wages and conditions will continue to be, you know, livable. Education on its own is not enough, and the conversation about skills gaps tends to ignore the wages that are being offered for all of these supposedly high-skilled jobs. 
My pick for this episode is Why Are So Many White Collar Professionals in Revolt by Gabriel Winant, writing in The Guardian. So what do you have to complain about? It's not so bad, right? So many people have it worse than you. Such comments are often hurled at workers who labor in professional workplaces, namely any place with four walls and a ceiling, where you might have a fancy title, might even have your name on the office door, have a college degree, and work for a salary rather than an hourly wage. But does that make you so different from the guy in the assembly line? Gabriel Winant looks at why so many of these workers are in revolt, and more importantly, what took them so long. He writes, quote, Part of growing up in an unequal society is learning how you're supposed to relate to the rules. At the top and the bottom of society, rules are either optional or mandatory. Elites break rules at their pleasure. Marginalized people follow rules because they have to. But in between, it's traditionally been the professionals who most deeply internalize and embody dominant social norms and codes of conduct. Just think of how we use professional as a term of praise, meaning appropriate, competent, and reliable, close quote. In other words, blue-collar workers are inherently rebellious, willful, bitter towards their rulers. They must be controlled and managed. They must be policed. White-collar workers, though, are allies of the boss, so they get to police themselves as faithful servants of capital. Hey, maybe they even hope to be the boss one day. Manant goes on to explain exactly why this is so dangerous. Quote, All workers exercise judgment. Every job requires skill, recognized or not. But autonomy from management has traditionally been an explicit part of the job description only for the credentialed. But many professional workers have begun mobilizing for their rights at work nonetheless, and Winand points to the examples of the teachers in Arizona and West Virginia who went on strike, the Columbia graduate workers striking for a union, and the nurses around the country who have led pretty big disruptive strikes or voted to unionize in recent months. Why so much militancy from these people who have nothing to complain about after all? Because professionals actually have a lot to be pissed about these days. Namely, that their work is being degraded in the same way that their blue-collar counterparts have seen their working conditions declining. They might be at a higher pay grade and have more degrees, but they struggle with increasingly dehumanizing and impoverishing systems of production. The labor movement has historically been divided between two categories, the blue and the white collar. Throw in pink collar in there somewhere along the way. The first is the denim-wearing, greasy-fisted, burly manual labor. The white-collar worker, meanwhile, has his world of office drones, paper pushers, bureaucrats of all stripes. However, Winand reminds us that many of these once-stable middle-class professions have been eroded. Quote, the testing regime imposed on public schools has routinized teaching. Nurses do paperwork rather than spend time bedside, and hospitals are systematically understaffed. The rise of contingent academic employment has eroded scholarly control over teaching and research, gutting the academic freedom once at the ethical core of the profession. In other words, the great things that made the professions the professions no longer apply in many cases. So maybe it's time we just rip off the yokes of these collars and transcend the labels too often used to divide and conquer. When Ant writes, quote, those skilled workers who became professionals and bought themselves a century of respite, they made themselves the political accomplices of the capitalist elite in exchange. Now capitalism has turned on them. In fact, many of the early industrial worker organizing drives, he points out, were led by more educated, skilled workers in these industries. And that was back in a moment of profound social upheaval and massive industrial expansion that they suddenly felt the need to galvanize the labor movement across the workforce and across industries. 
Today, it's not factories that are gutting skilled workers, but the internet and automation that are disrupting the very definition of what it means to work. With the entire class structure once again being turned upside down by new shifts in our means of production, it's time all of us rethink our relationship to our jobs, and most crucially, our relationship to each other as fellow workers. So maybe it's time to ditch the titles and pick up the pitchforks. And that's all for this week. If you would like to get in touch with us, and if you have any story ideas you'd like to share with us or questions, uh, if you have any workplace actions that you've undertaken, if you're launching a class action lawsuit against a boss, uh, let us know at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. And of course, you can always catch all of our archives at dissentmagazine.org at the belabored show page. That's it for now. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.